About a, a year and a half ago, you may, may remember that uh, I, I took about uh, five weeks away, that there were um, some, some things in my life and some things I needed to deal with that uh, couldn't be dealt with while I was also trying to lead a church. And during that time, there's a lot of self-reflection and uh, a lot of uh, conversations with, uh, with, with counselors and with my wife and with friends and with the elders and with people and mentors in my life. And uh, so there was, there was one particular day uh, where Katie and I had had a long conversation in the morning, and she had said some things uh, during that conversation. None of them just really said mostly in passing, um, but they stuck with me in my head, and I couldn't get them out of my head all day long. And I remember um, mowing the lawn that day, and in a moment... God very painfully and also very graciously revealing to me some of the inner motivations of my heart that I was not really aware of before. That underneath the things that I tell other people about what are important to me, um, underneath the things that are important to me, uh, there were some motivations there that were so it's not that they were so evil, it's just that they were so small and petty and meaningless. They were really the things that were driving me. And so I'm, I'm learning to die to those things. I'm learning how to die. Because grasping after those petty and small things, it was, it was making me miserable. It was making me um, not a very good husband and not a very good father and not a very good pastor, even if my wife and my kids and you all thought things were fine. It was making me inside a person that was, that was dying. And so God graciously revealed myself to me. And so I'm learning to die, to die to those things so that I can receive the real and abundant life that comes through following Jesus. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're at today. And this is such an important chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. In this chapter, we read about this conversation between Peter and Jesus, where in one moment, Peter is this, this shining example of what it means to be a disciple. And the very next moment, Peter is, is literally a tool in the hands of Satan against Jesus. And there's this shift in this chapter, just as we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, that you need to be aware of, that where Jesus begins to draw all of our attention to the cross. Jesus has been teaching and, and healing people. There's been, um, there's been some resistance and some trouble along the way from people who were against Jesus. But really in this chapter, Jesus reveals to his disciples what he's really here for. And so towards the end of this chapter, Matthew tells us that from, from that time on, from this moment on, after Peter and Jesus have this exchange, that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to be killed. And really from that point, this point on in Matthew, Jesus is on a slow but very sure march to his execution on the cross. 
And this revelation to his disciples is really hard for them to swallow. And if we are willing to listen to Jesus and hear what he has to say to us about what that means for us, it's really hard for us to swallow as well. Because Jesus says that if we want to follow him, then we are going to have to learn to die. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the the challenging but very, very good news of this message today. And ask that you would reveal it to us by your spirit as we look at your word. In Christ's name, amen. We've been looking at Matthew as a, as a manual for discipleship, a guide to following Jesus. What does following Jesus mean? What does it look like? How do we do it? And in this chapter, there are, there are two groups of people who misunderstand who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. The first is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and the second is the disciples represented by, by Peter. And these misunderstandings, if we will let them, they really hold up a mirror to our own, our own self and the ways that we may also misunderstand who Jesus is and what it means for him to be king and Messiah. So I want to begin by reading Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read um, verses uh, 1 through 4. It says this, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus then left them and went away. So the smartest and most sophisticated teachers and leaders of Israel come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign from heaven. Jesus, if you are who you say that you are, give us a sign from heaven and then we'll believe you. What are the Pharisees asking Jesus for here? They're asking for for proof. And they're asking Jesus to give them proof for who he is by doing something spectacular. They want him to do something amazing at their word, at their request, and in their time right then to prove who he is. Uh, Maybe they were thinking that he would do something like Elijah did. You remember that story with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? You know, they're there and uh, Elijah calls down fire from heaven. I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? And who wouldn't believe that Jesus was who he says he was if he could do that on command? So Jesus, do something like that. And will believe you are who you say you are. And Jesus refuse, refuses to play that game. He's not concerned about giving them proof. There's this verse in the Gospel of John uh, that says uh, that after Jesus did some miraculous signs, it says that people believed in him. But John tells us that um, Jesus... Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew it was in a person. He knew that, that people, even if they see miraculous signs, 
if they don't have faith, if they don't want to believe, a miraculous sign isn't going to convince them. And so Jesus says, if you, if you want a sign, here's what you get. You get the sign of Jonah. Remember Bill Ingvall and the, the comedian? No, here's your sign. Okay, that's the, that's the sign that he gives them, is the sign of Jonah. What's, what's that about? This is actually the second time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says this to a group of people. The first is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and through 41. And it says, Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Basically the same conversation. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And I'm taking you here in Matthew 12 because he expands on what the sign of Jonah is. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. What's the sign of Jonah that the Pharisees will receive? When the story of Jonah, he gets swallowed by this huge fish. Jonah goes through a death. He enters into a tomb. And in that tomb, he cries out to God and he says, From the depths of the grave, I called for help. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath me, the earth beneath trapped me, but you brought me from, up from the pit. And then Jonah is spit up onto the land, and God delivers Jonah from this grave. And Jonah goes, and he preaches this five-word sermon to these people that he hates, and they all repent, and they believe, and Jonah gets mad about it. And Jesus says that this is the sign that they're going to receive. Jesus tells the Pharisees that he will be swallowed up in death for three days, and God will deliver him and bring life to a group of people that they hate. You want a sign? This is the sign you get. The sign of Jonah. We can be quite like the Pharisees when it comes to following Jesus. All of us want Jesus to prove himself to us. We all have this, even as followers of Jesus, we have this resistance in our hearts to fully commit ourselves to him. In our hearts, we're always a little bit suspicious. And so, if, for example, we're going through some sort of difficult trial in our life, we're tempted to ask Jesus to prove himself, to come through for us in some way. We put him on trial so that we can reserve the right, if he doesn't come through for us in the way that we want, that we don't need to be fully committed to him anymore, unless he does what we ask of him, unless he does something spectacular for us. And Jesus doesn't play that game with the Pharisees, and he doesn't play that game with us. Because following Jesus, discipleship is believing that Jesus was swallowed up in death for you, and that's all the sign that you need. Discipleship is allegiance to the one that God sent to come and to die. And there's something in all of us that wants to follow Jesus for our own purposes, for our own plans. We have a wonderful plan for our lives, and we want Jesus to come along and 
be by our side and to help us get there, to help us overcome those obstacles, to keep us from suffering or whatever it is. And when we ask him to meet us on our terms, when we want him to do that thing, we are asking him to follow us rather than us committing ourselves to follow him no matter what. Whether he leads us beside still waters or whether we go through the valley of the shadow of death, discipleship is committing ourselves fully to this one that God sent to be swallowed up in death for us. And when we put Jesus on trial in this way, what we're telling him is that what he already did isn't enough for us. The sign that he already gave to us isn't enough for us. I've given you the sign of Jonah, Jesus said. I was swallowed up in death for three days and came to life again. And I did that because of my love and my commitment to you. And that's all the sign that you need. The smart and sophisticated teachers of Israel misunderstood who Jesus was. They demanded a sign. And as we move on through this chapter, we find that Peter also misunderstood who Jesus was. So in this chapter, we have this interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter. I'm going to start reading at verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter makes this true and accurate confession about who Jesus is. Jesus says, who do you say I am? The, the people say I'm Jeremiah, one of the prophets, but who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says to him, Jesus, you're more than a prophet. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed king. You are the one that the prophets promised was going to come. That's who you are, Jesus. And Jesus responds, and he, he commends Peter for this, and he says a couple things about this confession. He says that this is a message, Peter, that was, was given to you by the Heavenly Father. It was revealed to you. It wasn't something that man revealed to you. It wasn't something that you figured out for yourself. Understanding this confession 
Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not something that we are clever enough to figure out. It's not something that we can scientifically prove. It's not something that's understood because we've seen a sign in the sky. It's not something that comes from being convinced of it. It's a confession that comes as a gift of revelation from God. He also said that this message, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that that message comes with great authority. He says here that the gates of hell will not prevail against this message. The gates of hell will not prevail against this good news. Notice that this is not a statement about how strong of a defense the gospel is. This is a statement about the offensive, attacking, invasive power of this message. The image here is, is not that the church has these gates that because of the gospel will stand strong against the powers of hell. The image is that hell has gates and that the gospel will over, overcome those gates. In other words, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news that Jesus is the king, the son of God, the savior of the world, that is a message that cannot be stopped. It will penetrate, it will overcome all of the lies and the messages and the ideologies and philosophies that Satan builds up against it. The good news will accomplish all of the purposes that God has for it. And so, friends, we can be bold and confident to proclaim this, this message, this confession. Jesus is the king, the son of the living God. We can trust him, we can place our hope in him, and we can invite others to come and to do the same. And so Jesus commends Peter for this confession, but then Jesus begins to describe to the disciples what his kingship is going to look like. And that description is a real problem for Peter. Because Jesus says that his kingship is going to be characterized by suffering. He is the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of the living God. And because of that, he says, he is going to suffer and be killed. And Peter and the disciples thinks that, thinks that that sounds like a pretty bad idea. And Peter, no doubt newly confident in this commendation that he's received from Jesus, pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him to his face and tells him he's wrong. Jesus, these things that you said are going to happen, they aren't going to happen to you. And Peter, this man who was the first of his, of his disciples to proclaim the good news fully of who Jesus was, is now called Satan, the enemy, the adversary of Jesus. Peter got the confession right. He got the words right, but he still misunderstood what they meant. He misunderstood who Jesus was. Peter didn't think that the Messiah, the king, could suffer. When a king comes to rule, he doesn't suffer. He makes other people suffer, right? Especially the people I don't like. That's why I'm following you, Jesus. The king comes with a strong army. The king doesn't get crushed. The king crushes. So Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the king, I've just told you that, you've confirmed it. These things that you say, they're not going to happen to you. The Messiah, if he's going to be the Messiah, is going to come and crush his enemies. He's going to build up an army, he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be a winner. I'm on your side because you're a winner. 
This is no doubt something of what Peter had in mind. The Messiah crushes his enemies. The Messiah is not crushed. But Jesus says that that is exactly what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to be crushed and he's going to die. And Peter cannot possibly understand why the Messiah would die. So Peter thinks he's doing Jesus a favor by setting him straight. And Jesus says that this idea, Peter, this idea that I don't have to suffer, it is an idea from Satan. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he already overcame this temptation in the desert. Out in the wilderness, Satan came to Jesus and said, there's another way for you to rule. There's another way for you to be king. Just do things my way. Just follow me, Satan said to Jesus. Just do it my way and you can have all of the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus resisted that temptation in the desert and he resists it here from Peter. Because Jesus' kingship is not about gaining worldly power. The messiahship of Jesus, Jesus as king, is not about him grabbing earthly power and being enthroned and exalted high above all of us. His kingship is demonstrated as one who comes down into our suffering. His vocation, his calling from the Father is not to be a warlord, is not to be a political strongman. It's not to come and give good religious people everything that they think they need and they want. His vocation is to enter into the worst kind of suffering that human beings can experience. And to experience it and take it upon himself. The physical torture of the cross. The betrayal of one of his friends. And the rest of his friends totally abandoning him at the time when he needed it the most. The shame of the, of the public, people who spat on him, people who, who, who jeered at him and, and put a crown of thorns and a robe on his back to mock him. The experience of rejection by his own heavenly father that he experienced on the cross, that as he takes away and bears our sin, that there was a way in which Jesus experienced a separation from the Father. Jesus says to Peter, the same thing that he said to the Pharisees, the sign of my kingship is the sign of Jonah to be swallowed up in death. This is the kind of Messiah that we follow if we are followers of Jesus. In this story, Peter got the words right, and that was a great thing, but he didn't understand what the message meant. He got the confession of discipleship, but he did not understand the cost of discipleship. The surprise of the gospel, the surprise for Peter, the surprise that all of us have to come to terms with is that the God of the universe became a human being not to first bring his judgment on the world and to rule over it, but instead, he came to live a life of self-sacrifice and dying service to others. He came to wash our feet and to die for us. Which means that the surprising part about discipleship is that we're called to do the same thing. 
When Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, he meant one thing. It meant his death. And so we, too, must set our face to be willing to die to ourselves. That is the call of discipleship, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Everyone wants a savior, but we want a savior on our own terms. We want a savior who will give us what we want, a savior who will take our dreams and our desires that we have for ourselves and to make them happen. There's so many things that we want, and the fact of the matter is we can actually gain a lot of those things that we want. If we work really hard, we can get some of them by ourselves, but we hope that this Savior Messiah will just fill in the gaps for those areas that we can't quite grasp everything that we want. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And this is the cost of following Jesus. In order to save our lives, we must lose our lives. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of people on TV, preachers selling books, who tell us that Jesus wants nothing more than to make all of your dreams come true. To make you rich, to keep you from any and all suffering, And the very clear message of Scripture is that we, as human beings, followers of Jesus, that we experience all, as followers of Jesus, we we experience all of the, the same frustrations and hardships and disappointments of this life that people who are not followers of Jesus do. Father, we we ask that you would redirect our attention to you and to your word right now. As followers of Jesus, we experience sickness. We experience the reality of of death, of of evil, of things that people do to us. We're susceptible to, to sin and to failure in our own life. And not only that, but what we're told throughout Jesus's ministry and then in the letters is that we also have an additional additional allotment of suffering that comes from following Jesus, from from living in a world that is against this message. And so we can listen to those who are going to tell us that Jesus is here just to help you get whatever you want, or we can listen to Jesus who, who says to us, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Friends, uh, a year and a half ago when God showed me that underneath the things that I say that are important to me, underneath the things that I, I thought to myself are important to me, that underneath that was a life that I was striving for that was making me miserable. And I had, have to, to die to those things. What is it? What is it for you? What are the, the motivations and the desires underneath the things that you say? And underneath the things that you, you think you want or tell yourself that you want, what are the things that really motivate you to act in the way that you do? Is it having just a few more things? Is it 
gaining the approval and the admiration of other people? Is it being safe? Is it just wanting to have a good time? Is it, is it wanting to be, to be needed by other people? What is that thing underneath, that itty-bitty thing that Jesus says that moths and rust are going to destroy? In his grace, he wants to reveal those things to you so that this life that you are living, that you are grasping for in order to gain those things, that those things can die so that you can be invited into a new life, an abundant life of following Christ. Because if we try to hold on to our life, if we try to hold on to those little things, we will find that we will lose everything. But if we give up those little bitty things that we're living for, the things that are temporary that moth and rust are going to destroy and turn to Jesus, an abundant life is offered to us. Father, I, I pray that you would, by your spirit, reveal to us the things that motivate us and move us and that the things that we are, are really living for, the things that we're seeking to grasp and to gain in this life, so that we can feel safe, so that we can feel secure, so we can feel happy or whatever it is that we're pursuing. I pray that you would help us to learn to die to those things so that we may find Christ. Lord, we, we need your help. We need the revelation of, of the Father to declare that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, I pray that if there's any area of our life where we are, where we don't believe that, or we want to test you, ask you to prove yourself, I pray that we would remember that you took on our sin and our death, and you took it all the way to the grave. And then when you rose from the dead, you left that sin and that death in the grave. So, Father, we have, we have this new way, this new abundant eternal life that you offer to us if we will follow you. We ask that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.